Welcome, everybody. Can... Okay, I hope everybody can hear me. Um, my name is Anne Barron. Uh, I'm, I'm here in the law department. Um, I, I had a little presentation ready to welcome you all, but I think because of the time taken in the technology, sorting that out, I'll, I'll just uh, segue straight into the first open plenary. I do want to say, though, that um, Mary and I have, had, uh, have, have really found it an immense privilege and pleasure to organize this conference over the last few months. Um, it's been really great to engage in correspondence with the wonderful speakers that have gathered to speak with us over the next couple of days. Some of them have traveled very long distances to be here. All of them are, are, have worked very hard to uh, present their, their thinking about the state of higher education, and we're immensely grateful to all of them for being here. It's also been incredibly rewarding to engage with those of you who are participating in the conference in other capacities. Many of you wrote to us um, uh, explaining why you wanted to attend, and some of you wrote very passionately about how important you felt it was to have an opportunity to join with others who care about the university and what's happening to them, to discuss some of the forces that are shaping higher education today, not just here in the UK, but globally. There's a real commitment amongst us, I think, to discuss all of that with the rigor and the intelligence that's characteristic of academic work at its best. Many of you are specialists in higher education studies, and so the university is the focus of your research anyway. But many, many others amongst you are not specialists in higher education. You're university workers who specialize in sociology or anthropology or political theory or law, or you're working as learning technologists or you're working in university libraries. Some of you are part-time or temporary workers. Some of you have left the university sector because decent jobs were not available in your fields. A number of you, a surprising number of you, are students. We had some of the best letters from students, and this is remarkably inspiring. Um, and perhaps, as students, you're considering a future as an academic. Um, and we welcome you in particular, because it, it's the future that we're all concerned about. Several of you also are activists, as well as occupying one or other of the roles I've just outlined. And we welcome you as well. Because um, our starting point in organising this has been that all of these perspectives are uh, welcome and all should be brought together in an effort to understand the current situation and how we might respond to it. We mustn't forget, though, that we're here to commemorate Michel Foucault. This is the 30th anniversary of his premature death on the 25th of June, 1984. Um, the event title, of course, hints at the, the aspect of Foucault's work that was particularly important to us in thinking about how to theme the conference, his work on governmentality, which, of course, has only recently a lot of it come to light through the publication in English of his uh, late lectures at the Collège de France. I want to mention one person here, though, who's here today, and I'm delighted that he is, because it was an essay written by Peter Miller and the accounting department at the LSE called Governing, Academic, Governing Economic Life, I'm sorry, an essay published in um, Economy and Society um, 24 years ago, I think, 
co-written with Nicholas Rose, hugely influential piece, very much influenced me in my first attempts to get to grips with governmentality in the early 90s. And that essay, Governing Economic Life, was we tried to echo that in the title today. Um, of course, many of you are coming to this conference with different theoretical um, uh, frameworks in your heads, and we welcome you too. So this is also an occasion for bringing together Foucauldians and others who care about the university and want to bring their, um, the best of their theoretical understanding to our current situation from perspectives that are not Foucauldian or maybe even anti-Foucauldian. That's fine too. We want to encourage discussion between you all. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Gorminder Bamber, who's our first speaker today. Just before I do that, and I'm not going to... You, these people know, need no introduction. They're all... The three speakers today are fantastic people um, whose, whose work has been immensely influential uh, in our context. I just want to mention a couple of logistical things before we start the proper business. First of all, um, the pay bar, which I know is uppermost in the minds of, of all of us, actually begins at 6 o'clock this evening at the British Library, not at 6.15 as advertised. So we finish here at 5. You should process down uh, the road to the British Library. It will take about 30 minutes on foot, probably a bit less if you go on public transport. So allow for at least a half an hour to get there. We're in the Terrace Restaurant in the British Library. If you go to the reception desk at the entrance, they will direct you there, and there will be signage telling you where to go. From 6 o'clock, there will be a bar available, and we'll be sitting down at around half past 6 for the evening speeches. Okay. Second thing I want to say is that um, these sessions are being recorded, so bear that in mind if you want to speak, if you want to pose a question. You will be recorded and we, we trust we have your permission to include your, your uh, questions and, and comments in the podcast that goes out. If anyone has an issue with that, please let one or other of the uh, organisers know. Um, oh, I had two other things to say, and I've forgotten what they are, but you're, it's probably just as well. I'll stop there. If I can remember what, else, uh, what other logistical things needed to be said, I'll say that in the break. Okay, first speaker is... Professor Gominder Bamber from the University of Warwick. So, thank you to Anne for the invitation to come and speak here today. I'm going to talk about the neoliberal assault on the public university. And what I'd like to start by saying that the conditions governing academic life have changed dramatically over the last few years. And in this talk, I want to address the particular changes that have been implemented since the Brown Review in 2010. By focusing on this period, I don't want to suggest that these changes are unprecedented or that they don't have longer histories. They do. But what I want to focus attention on is what has occurred in this period, and in particular, our complicity in allowing these particular changes through. I mean, the idea of a long history and this presentation of, well, oh, well, the changes that are happening now, they all have this longer history, they're not unprecedented, and so on. Well, I want to suggest that the idea of a long history can frequently operate as an alibi for doing nothing. First, by suggesting that there's little new in the present, and second, by suggesting that there was nothing to defend in the substance of what we had previously. 
It always surprises me, although I guess by now it shouldn't, how whenever I make these arguments or outline these issues in terms of what's been happening since 2010, people often express astonishment. Astonishment, A, at what has happened, and B, at the general quiescence of academics and allowing it to happen. So given this continual state of astonishment, I'd like to outline once again what has happened, in part to set the political context for the conversations that are going to happen over the next couple of days, and then also to address the general quiescence of academics in allowing it to happen. My talk, then, will be less a Foucauldian critique, and there are plenty of speakers on the programme much more qualified than me in making such a critique anyway, Rather, it will simply set out the conditions under which such critique can be made and ask whether the making of critique, apparently at the expense of doing politics, is not one unfortunate characteristic of our time that, in fact, has allowed the current situation to come about. So before outlining the contours of the contemporary situation, I just want to give you a small anecdote about where I come from in terms of making this argument. In a Twitter conversation, Sarah Burton was suggesting using the titles of 1990s teen films as the chapter titles for her PhD. So, for example, Cruel Intentions for a chapter on the ref, for example. Someone then suggested Rebel Without a Cause, even though it's not a 90s teen movie. And I thought, actually, Cause Without Rebels probably more accurately describes our current situation, where we have an institution to defend the public university system, but not enough people willing to stand up and defend it. Why this might be? Well, some of it might be related to conditions that was described in Ross Gill's article on the hidden injuries of neoliberal academia. We need to remember, though, that this article was written in 2009, before the current changes, and it ended with challenging us to think about how we might begin to resist. Five years later, the challenge remains the situation has worsened significantly, and we're no closer to seeing effective resistance than we were then. So what is this change situation? So to start with the brief discussion, I mean, the Brown Review was set up in 2009, and it was set up by the Labour government. It reported in October 2010 to the Conservative Lib Dem coalition government. It was chaired by Lord Brown, and it had people like Michael Barber, David Eastwood, and Julia King on the panel. Now, this is significant because it tied cross-party support and significant sections of the higher education establishment to a divisive agenda, which was ultimately about the breakup and marketization of public higher education in England. And I should state here that the changes that I'm talking about are obviously specific to England because the situation is very different in Scotland and other devolved jurisdictions. And it was the nature of the coalition of the willing, that is, the people on the panel, the higher education establishment, and so on, it was this coalition that required effective, visible, and determined resistance. And it was this that I will go on to suggest that was missing. So key recommendations of the Brown Review were the removal of the fee cap. So at the time of the Brown Review, students paid fees of £3,290 for the year. And their recommendation was to remove the fee cap to allow students, universities to charge whatever the market would bear. They also argued for the removal of public funding and the establishment of a loan system that would be supported by a levy on fees above 9,000. 
Most of these changes were accepted by David Willits, who was the university's minister, except that he decided to cap fees at £9,000, but bring up the basic threshold of fees up to £6,000. So most recommendations were accepted, and the subsequent white paper on higher education, which ostensibly put students at the heart of the system, was published in June 2011. What very quickly became clear from both the Brown Review and the government's response to it was that the concern was much less about putting students at the heart of the system than transforming the public system of higher education into a market system. And if not all elements of a full marketised system, as recommended by the Brown Review, were put in place immediately, it is clear that the intention is to drive the market reforms forward. So this same coalition of the willing is today lobbying strongly for a removal of the fee cap. You've probably seen the articles in the Times Higher and, and so on. And they're also arguing for the introduction of a qualifications threshold for access to the loan system. This latter would cap student numbers and the numbers who could, you know, the numbers who could take out student loans, and it would intensify the pressure from for-profit higher education on post-92 public institutions at the same time as reinforcing selective education through the push of domestic fees to the level currently paid by international students. <coughs> now, while much of the initial reporting and resistance against the proposals that were put forward in the Brown Review focused on the tripling of student fees, a few of us, including John Homewood, who's in the audience over there, and myself, set up the campaign for the public university to draw attention to the withdrawal of the Hefke block grant from all teaching except that of STEM subjects and the notable absence of any discussion of the public values of education. A lot of our early activities did focus on campaigning together with students against the rise in tuition fees and we sought at the same time to assert the public values of education explicitly within that campaigning. So some of the things that we did, we wrote to all MPs and members of the House of Lords. The last was a little difficult because the House of Lords, they don't use email. And so we had to coordinate an actual letter writing campaign to ensure that every single one of them was communicated with. We participated in the various demonstrations in 2010 and 2011 opposing the tripling of tuition fees. And we also set up a website and email list as a way of promoting discussion among those who were interested in and concerned about what was happening. The tuition fees debate, however, was lost. After that, we refocused our activities around the forthcoming white paper on higher education. This white paper actually took quite a long time to arrive, and it wasn't published until just before the summer break in 2011. You could say that this was nicely or perhaps cynically timed, especially as the consultation period ended before academics would be regularly back on campus. Nonetheless, over the summer of 2011, John Homewood managed to galvanise a diverse and eclectic grouping of academics to contribute to the drafting of an alternative white paper, which was titled In Defence of Public Higher Education. This was submitted to the consultation in September 2011. It received some media coverage at the time. And it also contained an appendix written by Andrew McGettigan, who argued that switching the costs of tuition from grants to loan-backed fees might reduce the deficit in the short term, but in effect was an accounting trick. The latter is a position that is now widely accepted, but it's now being used as the basis for the further marketisation of higher education, 
and for the reduction of the, supposedly, of the supposed excessively advantageous terms of the student loan system. And I'll talk more about that in a bit. Other responses to the consultation were also submitted by individual colleagues and others. The consequence of this robust rebuttal of the proposals that were put forward in the White Paper was not to force a rethink by the government, but rather for them to decide to forego the usual next stage. So usually when you have a white paper, it's followed by a bill that's debated in Parliament and then it becomes law. So instead of uh, putting forward a higher education bill, which would then be debated, they decided to pass the necessary legislation by add-ons to other unrelated bills that would be going through Parliament. Something that I would suggest is a manifestly anti-democratic move in response to a very strong mobilisation by the public sphere against what had been proposed. After this, the campaigns lost steam in part. So the campaigns of students and academics against fees and against the dismantling of the system of public higher education lost steam. There were still some high-profile occupations by students, notably at Sussex, at Birmingham, Glasgow and Warwick. But perhaps more effectively, there's been a near-absolute criminalisation of protest on campus and a severe disciplining of dissent. The heavy-handed policing during the riots in summer 2011 and the politicisation of the judicial process during this period together with actions taken by individual vice-chancellors, David Eastwood and Michael Farthing being the most notorious, effectively criminalised and silenced a generation that sought to protest against the manifest injustices that were being heaped upon them. The refusal to set out the proposals of the White Paper on Higher Education Bill and to debate them in Parliament meant that there was no longer a focus around which academics could be mobilised. Work did continue behind the scenes with meetings with MPs such as Gareth Thomas and Shabana Mahmood and occasional letters to The Guardian, The Times, The Times Higher, objecting to new developments as they were put forward and seeking to maintain some pressure, some sense that we as an academic community cared enough to mobilise. But in effect we lost. The changes went through and this is the current situation that we, or perhaps more appropriately, the younger generations face. <clears throat> Given that fees don't have to be paid up front and the new loan system is more generous than the previous one, some people have asked, well, what's the problem? Beyond the issues associated with creating a generation in debt in its own terms, as well as the political consequences of this, as highlighted in this oft-circulated quote from Chomsky, there are real inequalities in the system itself. So I just want to take you through the situation that students are now facing who take out the loans to come to university. So the situation is that students don't begin repayments until they earn over 21,000. And at that point, they pay 9%. That is nine, 9 pence in the pound on top of what the income tax is otherwise. So between 0 to 10 you pay no tax, nobody pays any tax. From 10 to 41,000, everybody pays 20% tax. But for graduates, once they start earning over 21,000, so for, for them, from 21 to 41,000, they're paying 29% tax. The real injustice, I would suggest, is in the next bracket. 
So anybody who earns over 41,000, anybody pays 40% tax. Graduates pay a 49% tax. So at 41,000, graduates are paying 49% tax when a 50% tax was deemed to be too excessive for those on incomes of over 150,000 and it was reduced just recently to 45%. So we're asking graduates to pay a higher tax than those who are the highest earners in this country. And remember also that those highest earners will likely have gone to university, not paid fees, and in fact got grants to support their study during this period. And what's also being talked about, you know, I mean, this is unsustainable for a variety of reasons. Not least that the expected default is now commonly put at 45%. And so the new system is expected to cost more than the one that it replaced. With a default of 45%, 55% will repay. And they will also be the taxpayers required to pick up the cost of the system as a whole. As such, the stage is set for a backlash against the currently positive features of the loan system. And you can see that this is already evident in the way in which the group that has come to accept that student fees are justified, alongside thinking that there are too many students, are university graduates themselves. That is, the beneficiaries of previously public higher education. Those without qualifications remain strongly committed to ideals of public higher education and strongly committed to its public funding. Given that all of these changes were brought in under the fig leaf of austerity and the necessity to do something to address the fiscal deficit, it is increasingly clear, although for many of us it always was, that these changes are ideological and they're about the destruction of a system of public higher education. A system of public higher education to be replaced by privatised education, outsourced services, for-profit providers and indebted generations. And in the face of this, we did what? We, tenured academics, allowed our mouths to be stuffed with gold and largely remained silent as government ministers, university vice-chancellors and many of our colleagues worked out how to make the best of the new situation. A situation in which our advantages are leveraged from the indebtedness of students and where we justify the university as part of taking care of the future, while we condemn many of those that we teach to a future that is significantly bleaker than that enjoyed by previous generations. Rosgill suggested that part of the reason for our collusion in the marketisation of the university is that we are perfect neoliberal subjects and that it appears to be self-indulgent and narcissistic to emphasise the hidden injuries to which we have been subjected. And yet it's apparent that the impact of the changes upon academics and resistance to that has been divisive. The Council for the Defence of British Universities, for example, was formed not to defend public higher education, but to defend the terms and conditions of academics. This was apparent in their main campaign, which asked academics to record the rot 
that is to report the decline of the traditional university without addressing the wider politics of higher education and democracy within which those problems were related. The clear agenda here was to emphasise the injuries to which academics believe themselves to be subject. What I'd like to suggest in conclusion is that maybe that was the problem all along. All too aware of the changing conditions of our academic life, we were unwilling to make the connections to broader processes of widening inequality within and across generations. And for the most part, we failed to realise that to resist effectively would require addressing our privilege rather than our sense of injury. Thank you. So our next speaker is Professor Wendy Brown from University of California, Berkeley. Um, just give me a moment to... <laughs> oh, please. Oh, actually, you don't have slides, Wendy, yeah. do you? No, okay. Um, well... Thanks, and it's a pleasure to be here. I, I just want to say at the outset that um, Foucault both is and is not in the talk I'm about to give. He's um, so in the way that I think um, that he can't not be here, but he's not so much going to help with the content of the very thing I'm going to try to explain um, because his, his brilliant early account of, of neoliberalism in those college lectures um, didn't capture the turn that I'm trying to express. So that's my nod to Foucault. I want in this talk to explain two things at a very broad level. First, why it took so long for the university to be conquered by market rationality. And second, what the entailments of this conquest are for faculty governance. I'm going to be arguing that our frequent naming of our predicament today as the corporatization of the university misreads the ways universities have been reshaped by the transition from a corporate economy to a shareholder or financialized economy. More than a misnomer, the idea of the corporatization of the university, I think, actually prevents us from grasping what this transition has meant for both the governance and the mission of universities. The problem in a nutshell could be put like this. In a matter of 40 years, public and private institutions of higher learning have shifted from being governed by faculty to a form of governance contoured by shareholder value and increasingly disseminated across university life rather than concentrated in any particular person or body. This is not merely the result of the economic restructuring of academia, although, of course, that restructuring has occurred. Rather, it's the effect of the university's transposed valuation in a shareholder economy and the effect of the university's own awkward uptake of a model of governance that is attendant upon shareholder capitalism. 
So while we are appropriately frustrated by the loss of public investment in university and research and teaching as a public good, while we're understandably outraged about retrenchment of access generated by scandalous tuition costs, this after a century of expanded access to higher education, while we rightly lament reducing students to human capital, remaking curriculums for high-level vocational training, valuing research by commercial impact factor, my suggestion is going to be that each of these is actually a symptom of a revolutionary transformation of universities in the past two decades, one that has been occasioned by the larger transition from corporate to shareholder capitalism. Now, in the space available today, I'm only going to paint the picture in very broad brushstrokes. I'm going to just identify a few of its implications, and further, the picture will be peculiarly American. I'm not going to talk about the REF. It's going to be peculiarly American, both because of the way that an absent welfare state shaped corporate capitalism in the United States, and because of the particularly massive post-war expansion of liberal arts higher education in the US. That said, I think the account I'm going to offer can be modified and adapted for our UK and European kin and comrades. So with a nod to Foucault, here is the story we usually tell ourselves. For a very long time, Institutions of higher education were ivory towers, an exception to and buffered from the rest of the economy, its forms, metrics, and players. Intrinsic goods requiring little or no justification, universities were run like no other institution of its size, except perhaps the church, from which historically, of course, universities were largely derived. University costs were barely accounted or weighed against benefits. They were unusually large, diverse, yet holistic operations, integrating and cross-subsidizing science and humanities, undergraduate education and specialized research, academic gravitas, and youthful social sexual exploits. Universities were governed by faculty who had neither credentials nor special aptitude for governing, who were tenured for life, and who were modestly paid relative to their level of education and social status, but entered the profession for its satisfactions, including a rare degree of workday independence and relative lack of alienation. Students were not oriented toward higher education as consumers or investors. Rather, college either reproduced membership in the elite or was a ladder of upward mobility. A liberal arts higher education was presumed fundamental for either. From a societal perspective, higher education was a public good, producing the next generation of leaders and professionals, raising the general level of knowledge required for civility, problem-solving, and progress, and developing the intellectual acumen required of self-governing people in a modern, complex age. Research had the value its disciplinary guilds vested upon it and was neither accountable to nor even expected to be legible beyond the professoriate. In short, the university was off the economic grid, notwithstanding its elaborate internal hierarchies, its structuring by and reproduction of class, and its indisputable role in providing knowledge and personnel for capitalist development and growth. Upon this age, the story goes, twilight fell. Privatization and neoliberalization converted a public good to a private one, placed faculty on market scales allocating reward according to commercial metrics, 
cast students as commercial educational products in the 70s, consumers in the 80s, and investors in education oriented by their development of human capital starting in the 90s. The withdrawal of public funding and imposition of a corporate business model on universities brought an end to their isolation from the rest of the economy and to centuries of semi-feudal rule by faculty. This imposition rapidly and violently transformed every aspect of university endeavor and infrastructure, access, expectations, working conditions, the ethos of learning, society's valuation of knowledge, and the historic sequestering of quotidian academic spaces and undertakings from corporate influence. The problem with this story is that neoliberalization, while extremely important, was not all that happened in the late 20th century. There was also financialization, attention to which changes our understanding of both the history and predicaments of our present. In Managed by the Markets, Gerald Davis divides American 20th century capitalism into three phases. The first emerged from turn-of-the-century Wall Street financed mergers that turned dozens of regional producers into national oligopolies or monopolies. This was the original finance capitalism featuring control of industry by bankers, Rockefellers, Morgans, Carnegies, etc. Lasting only a few decades, this was an unstable and unpopular set of arrangements. Bank control of industry in particular frightened the public and pushed it leftward. And it was partly from this anxiety that the welfare form of corporate capitalism emerged. From the 1920s forward, the fantastic expansion and growth of the corporation in the U.S. was accompanied, it's important to remember, by its adoption of numerous welfare functions for workers and managers alike. Indeed, U.S. corporations managed the social risks from pensions and paid vacations to health and life insurance, housing assistance, even recreation programs that would increasingly be seen as the responsibility of governments in the UK and Europe. And it was partly by doing all of this that social democracy in the United States was averted. Moreover, while corporate managers naturally had to keep an eye on profits, this was not their sole or even main concern. Rather, their own status and reward was tied to their firm's growth and expanding dominion in an era of unprecedented and what would turn to be sh out to be short-lived oligopolies fashioned from vertical integration. <laughs> the third stage of 20th century capitalism, financial or shareholder capitalism, disintegrates these giants as it divides, outsources, and offshores various operations displaces managerial control of firms with governance according to shareholder value, and transforms everything about the way that successful firms are oriented, organized, and compete. The corporation itself is reduced to what corporate management works call a nexus of contracts. The corporation is divested of its soul, and its developments and fortunes become tied exclusively to shareholder value, existing and prospective. Boards of directors, importantly, gain power over managers, and managers themselves rise and fall according to their capacity to enhance shareholder value. Now, my concern today is with the transition from corporate capitalism to shareholder capitalism, because that's where the university undergoes this giant revolution. Shareholder capitalism affects academia not simply by neoliberalizing or privatizing it, 
but by radically transforming its governance parameters, metrics, and sources as the university is remade in the image of shareholder capitalism. So my argument is that universities were largely organized and governed, albeit with their own weird inflections and adaptations, by the welfare corporate model for much of the 20th century. Universities were large, vertically integrated institutions run like little welfare states and managed by the faculty for the well-being of the whole. What we're suffering now, therefore, is not the corporatization of the university, but its undoing by shareholder capitalism. For this claim to be compelling, I have to dig a little deeper into the transition I've just mapped very briefly between um, corporate capitalism and shareholder capitalism. As I've already suggested, though it's very difficult for us to remember this now, managers of large 20th century corporations were not primarily oriented by profit or by shareholder value. Corporations famously satisficed rather than maximized value, and managers were more concerned with and rewarded for expansion than sheer profit. Moreover, corporate executives comprised a new upper class without being a ruling class. Fascinating mid-20th century sociologists and economists because they indexed a novel separation of ownership from control, and they exercised immense power to shape these behemoth institutions of society. Unions, of course, were at their peak, their peak strength, and managers and workers alike enjoyed informal lifelong tenure in the corporations for which they worked. So one didn't simply get a paycheck from General Motors or AT&T or National Cash Register, but belonged to their orbit. And corporate pension, health, and life insurance plans were the signature of this. Employees literally lived, retired, and died in the arms of a single corporation. There are lots of reasons why this system fell apart in the 70s and 80s. Globalization challenged oligopolistic competitiveness, vertical integration, and decently compensated employees with cheap offshore labor and production. Growth in productivity reduced employment across most industries. The retail and service sector, featuring none of the qualities I just mentioned, expanded exponentially. There was also stagflation, an energy crisis, and of course, above all, the Reagan-Thatcher revolution. But in that revolution, the usual focus is on deregulation, union busting, privatizing public industries, services, and goods. But the Reagan-Thatcher program, it's important to remember, heavily informed by the Chicago School, had another vital feature. The challenge to managerialism with a market for corporate control. Rejecting the welfare state quality of corporate management and also worrying, as they did, about the oligopolistic tendencies that, that thinkers like Schumpeter saw as leading inexorably towards state socialism, the neoliberal economists identified control of a company as itself an asset that could be sold to improve performance, stem corporate capitalism's declining competitive status, and rescue free enterprise society itself. Two reforms in particular were needed. Managers needed to be made more dependent on boards of directors and shareholders, serving rather than dictating to them, and underperforming firms had to be taken over by new managers. 
The second reform produced the first, but importantly, together they had the contingent effect of reconfiguring companies as competing for investors, success now measured according to standing in the stock market, not the so-called real market. Thus, financialization of value in the non-banking sector was born. With it came the unrestricted takeover market, mergers and bust-ups, and above all, the end of the idea of the corporation as a social entity, an entity with a soul, a character, and provisions for its members. This was the end of vertical integration, conglomerates, and single product manufacture as well. Where the old corporation had been a vast oligopoly and miniature welfare state, the new nexus of contracts was lean, mean, flexible, and often fleeting. My point here is not the old one about post-Fordism, that disseminated and flexible global production heralded the end of long-term employment contracts, unions, and benefit systems. Rather, my point is that financialization brought with it a new kind of governance shaped by a new management goal of enhancing shareholder value. This value is not reducible to profit, as the frequent combination of a company's posted quarterly losses and rising stock prices makes clear. Rather, the way a firm is valued by the stock market is determined, of course, by a great range of tangibles and intangibles, how the companies run, what it's just acquired or divested from, its perceived risk exposure, who's bidding to take it over, who its new competitors are, how its own gambles with products and pricing are regarded by the industry, what future product line it claims to be developing, what reputational damage it may have just suffered. Crudely put, what matters is not the bottom line, but how would-be investors regard a firm's potential for enhancing shareholder value, making the stock go up in the future? What matters is the market's assessment of a company's future promise, which is also affected by the market moves based on speculators' beliefs or guesses about that promise. So compared to the omens and auguries that can bump a stock value, commodity fetishism is child's play here. But importantly for our purposes, and I'll get back to the university in just a second, stock market valuation, not profit, growth, or long-term dominance, also determines the fates of managers and contours every decision they make. So what does all this have to do with universities? As I've suggested, we've never been as far outside these schemes of organization, governance, and value as the conventional story suggests. In state schools and elite privates, Academic management and governance has strongly paralleled that of the rest of the economy. And the great shift that I've just outlined so briefly has revolutionized universities, which, as they have been neoliberalized and privatized, have adopted both the governance practices and the values of the shareholder capitalism era. There are many important effects of this, and by way of concluding, I want to identify just two loss of faculty governance, and loss of university mission, as we have come to be governed by ratings and rankings by would-be investors, and as various components of the university are broken out and sold off to commercial enterprises and venture capitalists, from Coursera and edX to Google. While these losses, of course, are familiar to this audience, I think refraction through the story I've just told may possibly illuminate some new features of them. 
For most of the 20th century, faculty controlled the standards and set the basic conditions of research and teaching, curriculums, general education requirements, standards for degrees, and for graduation. Through a combination of Senate committees, departments, and individual decisions, faculty mostly determined when, what, and how we taught, what students should know and obtain degrees for, what programs should be developed, retired, or transformed. Of course, constrained by social and commercial values, organizing grant funding, research was also ours to design and pursue without regard for its valuation outside the university. Indeed, there were lucrative defense contracts and corporate consultancies available, but these did not govern. They were there for the taking or not. In short, faculties were, faculty were the managers of the academic side of the house, the knowledge-generating, knowledge-dispensing part of the university. To be sure, we were a weird breed of manager, managing ourselves and not only others. That's the phenomenon expressed in the notion of shared governance. But re retrospectively striking is who and what had so little say in how teaching and research were organized, evaluated, and rewarded namely financial officers, trustees, chancellors, presidents, donors, and the public. Faculty governance was acceptable through the era of corporate capitalism, I'm suggesting, precisely because it comported with its parameters and values. Without hostile takeovers or corporate rating, although both online education and the new managerialism might be construed as such, this is the position from which faculty have been radically displaced in the last two decades. If the empty husk of the old regime remains in the form of Senate educational policy committees, department curriculum reviews, and so forth, in no meaningful sense do faculty now govern the university or their work as teachers and researchers. As new managerial layers at the top, Combined with circulating benchmarks and best practices imported from the commercial sector and outsourced support services, both teaching and research are increasingly contoured by shareholder value metrics, capacity to generate rankings that will attract investors. Would-be investors in research include both public and private money seeking a significant return. Investors in education are now rendered as bits of human capital seeking to enhance their future value. And of course, corporate foundation and private donors to any part of the university are drawn to the, the university's capacity to return value to them. As a financialized shareholder value economy and culture generates ratings for investor calculations in everything, such ratings have proliferated for academia and govern every part of it. There are rankings of individual faculty, departments, and of course, institutions as a whole. There are rankings of graduate programs and subfields within them. There are job placement rankings and postgraduate income ratings. For undergraduates in the U.S., there are ratings for dining halls, housing, recreation facilities, cultural and social life. And the Obama administration plan to link federal financial aid to return on investment will rank every institution of higher learning according to a complex algorithm built from much of what I've just listed, plus tuition. Again, these rankings and ratings simultaneously index values, value for would-be investors and are themselves driven by investments. And in this respect, they're both speculative and objective 
but above all represent a market radically different from one shaped by supply, demand, scarcity, labor value, or profit. Along with the ubiquitous bond ratings for public institutional borrowing, they govern universities by shaping practices at every level, in student ethos and conduct, in pedagogy, curriculum design, program revision, in hiring and firing, developing university partnerships and programs based on them, in lines of research pursued or not, in publication venues, and in esteem for ourselves and our colleagues. So shareholder capitalism transforms both who and what governs the university, as well as what it is for. It's introduced profound mission confusion into both research and teaching, and it has radically delinked the two, insofar as research and teaching are governed by different investor groups. Indeed, the quaint faculty insistence that research and teaching are linked refers to a university holism disintegrated by shareholder capitalism. But the most serious mission confusion lies in undergraduate education. Notwithstanding the persistence of the so-called college premium, better income prospects for BA degree holders, it's unclear what kind of college curriculum enhances human capital. What is clear is that return on investment presses toward com curricular compression. No dawdling over meaning, no state of wonder for today's bit of human capital ever seeking to enhance its value. Meanwhile, a new problem opens up as students themselves become the source of teacher and course ratings. Once confidential, used primarily as information in hiring and promotion, student assessments of teachers are now public, gamed, and growing determinants of what gets taught, how, and by whom. Student indifference to the status as opposed to effectiveness and entertainment value of faculty reinforces then the casualization of academic labor. A cheap young classroom talent is a far better investment than a tenured teaching mediocrity for both student and institution alike. Similarly, the rankings of colleges, based on algorithms weighting quantitative attributes of applicants, reinforce reliance on standardized tests, AP courses, and other widely acknowledged corruptions of elementary and secondary education even as high school and college personnel alike decry these measures, not simply for this corruption and their reinforcement of socioeconomic advantage, but also for their poor training for college-level learning. This bias was manifest when, a few years ago, one college in the U.S., ambition to, ambitious to boost its national rankings, was discovered to be paying matriculated freshmen to retake the SAT the leading standardized test used for admission and college rankings. How long before colleges induce their graduating seniors to take lucrative jobs in finance rather than social work because it will up the college's ROI and its ranking? This is what it means to be managed by the financial markets. Thus, not only have faculty been displaced from university governance by financial market metrics and managers oriented by them, a deep divide has opened up between faculty standards for research and education on the one hand, and on the other, student investors and new university managers themselves appointed and backed by trustees drawn from the world of business. <clears throat> This divide means that we, faculty, would fare no better if we were to press for governance by stakeholders rather than shareholders. 
because other university stakeholders, families, students, managers, staff, the public, and donors, share neither a commitment to the old model of the university as a corporate whole, nor do they share the wish to restore the old managerial class to the throne. Most have little difficulty with the fact that just as commodity production can be globally dispersed, partitioned, and rebranded, academic research and learning can be segmented, hybridized, outsourced, cross public and private and academic corporate lines, and above all, be detached from university degrees and fiefdoms. Hence, it's mostly university managers who've embraced online education and partnered with private corporations to provide it. Last week, for example, brought the news of Starbucks and Arizona State University joining forces to offer so-called free online course, college courses to 135,000 Starbucks employees, <coughs> not mentioning that extensive use of government financial aid will be, made, will be employed for the project. Starbucks saw its stock jump after the announcement. The question I want to offer in concluding is not whether faculty have any hopes of retrieving their power to govern, but how we might position ourselves now, now that the rationale for faculty governance has been radically undone by the university's decorporatization and financialization. If not as the governing class, or as academic laborers fighting for our own sectarian interests, there may yet be a critical role for faculty in shaping academia's future. It would derive from our relation to a form of governance that is impoverishing our classrooms and our labs, our graduate programs and our research, our collegiality and our creativity, but most importantly, impoverishing the future of civilizations. Seeking to defend the non-financialized value of learning and research, along with public access to it, the value that is now being bulldozed by shareholder capitalism, we would find ourselves in something akin to the structurally weak but potentially symbolically potent position of Tiananmen's Tankman, Tunisia's Fruit Cellar, Palestine's Rachel Corey, that is, displaced as governors, we would be minority voices going up against the regime as we fight for a cause a cause of research and teaching that bears on the future of human and cultural enrichment, planetary sustainability, democracy, other such values. The question is whether academics, whether university faculty, have the spine and the humility for this positioning, and whether we're willing to take it up in a dirty, difficult, impure public sphere, where there will be no deference to our status or our gravitas, let alone our historical claim to the throne. Thanks. Thanks very much, Wendy. Um, and our final speaker is Professor Michael Power from the Accounting Department here at the LSE. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, 
I'm the accountant, and I think it's very uh, appropriate coming after Wendy because uh, large parts of her story uh, require accounting to operationalise this this new financialised world of higher education. Um, When I registered for the conference, uh, this little document fell out of the, uh, the pack. Uh, about the impact of the social sciences produced by my colleagues here at LSE. Uh, and there's some fantastic stuff in here, um, lots of data, and they're doing very interesting work on the nature of uh, the impact assessment in the university. But it puts me in a kind of somewhat schizophrenic uh, methodological position because, on the one hand, they're colleagues, but also this document is the object, uh, or in part the object that I'm talking about. Such documents would have been impossible uh, 10 years ago, uh, and now we see uh, more and more of them. So my subject today uh, is my colleagues, and, and indeed the subject of this, uh, this whole conference is in some sense we're talking about ourselves and our colleagues uh, and the changes that we're experiencing. So. Um, I'm talking about uh, accounting for research impact, and and as an accounting academic, you very rarely get an opportunity to watch a a brand new accounting system, not even to watch it, but actually to actively participate in its creation, as I have done, to to see a brand new accounting system come into into being. Uh, And so that's my my topic today. Um, No, I want to move on. How do I move the slides on? There we go. So I'm going to talk about the, the rise of uh, uh, impact as a value. Uh, it's a very UK story, so it's to do with uh, the REF that many UK academics have just gone through. The results will be out in December, uh, and how that impact agenda um, came about. And at the centre of that is an accounting instrument, the impact case study. And I'll spend a little bit of time talking about its characteristics. But what's really interesting are, are the kind of the, the effects that the production of these impact case studies are beginning to have and may have in the future uh, as impact uh, solidifies as a value uh, and as we, uh, we higher education institutions build an apparatus uh, to support the accounting for impact. So there is, as, uh, as we've heard already this morning, a, a long-standing policy interest in, in outcomes in a whole uh, uh, wide area of public life, uh, value for money studies, concerns with efficiency, economy, uh, uh, and effectiveness, uh, and long-standing sort of debates and issues about how to link the work of universities to the productive economy. There's nothing particularly uh, new about that. Uh, but we also see the, the rise of the impact agenda uh, elsewhere, uh, particularly in the development sector. Um, the World Bank uh, has uh, a strong interest in conducting studies of the, the impact of it, the aid that it gives to developing countries. Uh, there are practices like environmental impact assessment, etc. And so I think we could safely say that the impact as a kind of policy value has become more conspicuous across a number of, 
of fields. Uh, and although it's not my question today, there is a question about why that has happened, why impact rather than notions or, or coupled to notions of outcome uh, and perhaps softer notions of engagement which uh, have, more, um, uh, have had a longer currency uh, in the university sector. Uh, and I think um, in part this is to do with sort of budgetary pressures to demonstrate in a kind of clear way. I mean, Wendy talked about uh, um, mission drift and, and, and mission confusion. And, and in a way, the impact word is an attempt to, to produce a kind of mission clarity uh, 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 within organizations, practices, projects, uh, and universities. And uh, the attraction of impact is there's an, a kind of implicit clarity of the causal model at stake, that academics do a piece of research and there is a chain of effects which can be traced and reported and audited which results in something happening of a beneficial nature, very importantly, outside the university. So there's an implied causal model of change uh, and uh, those of you who have been close to this process will know that impact um, accounting requires demonstrable impact. Uh, many academics think they are impactful uh, in giving public lectures like this. None of this counts. This impact has to be demonstrated through some kind of causal relation. And that, that's a very new kind of, uh, of requirement, a new set of habits for academic colleagues to begin to reflect on. Um, so uh, as far as the REF is concerned, um, the exercise that UK academics have just been through involves 20% of funding will be awarded for impact. So really a rather significant um, sort of economic dimension to this. Uh, the pressures for this in the university system go back to the Worry Report in 2006, uh, where there was a strong desire for metrics uh, of academic impact. Uh, but that was contested. There were very, several kind of compromises along the way. Uh, and indeed, the, what the, even the nature of impact uh, was itself a, a subject of, of much de debate. Initially, the desire was for beneficial economic impact, so a tight relationship between research activities of scholars and demonstrable benefit to GDP, uh, to put it crudely. Uh, that became um, somewhat uh, sort of pluralized and diluted with wider conceptions of benefits uh, being, um, being offered, uh, many of which we, uh, many of us in this room would not um, ha have a problem with. But what's interesting about the impact agenda is, is what it's not. Uh, impact is not about inputs, it's not about advice, it's not, about, and not at all about the mission of teaching where probably um, those of us in universities have our greatest, uh, if somewhat invisible, impact. It's not about scholarship, it's not initially about engagement, and it's certainly not about giving uh, public lectures about, uh, like this. It's quite narrow. It's, it's being able to demonstrate that research has resulted in uh, a change process in the outside world. Uh, and um, there's a kind of implied uh, sort, of re uh, sort of diffusion model here that uh, we do a piece of research as scholars uh, in a disinterested sort of way. This is the myth. 
then there's, uh, it's taken up by um, outside bodies who cite the work uh, and through their reading and citation of that work and public bodies and, and private corporations um, there's some kind of change that goes on and so uh, the impact case study is a story of that diffusion and, and change uh, model, that's the device. Of course, there was uh, re resistance to this uh, uh, agenda of impactfulness, uh, markedly from the humanities, as you, you might expect. Um, I, actually, I find the, the sort of the, the events of resistance actually far less interesting. Uh, they had to happen. What is it quite interesting is they died out quite quickly, which I, I think relates to uh, Gurinder's first talk. Uh, and actually the most interesting phenomenon is the extent of mass compliance with the, with the impact agenda. Uh, there are also very mixed reactions across disciplines. Uh, I kind of experienced um, some reactions in, in some disciplines as, as what I would describe as the revenge of the applied. Uh, in other words, that theory had held the sway in status terms for so long that... Uh, Applied subjects and applied, more applied academics saw the impact agenda uh, as being advantageous. But I think what's interesting is the impact is, is in some sense, the latest instrumentalization of, uh, of governing academic life and, and may well be related to some of the processes that Wendy described under the, the rubric of, um, of financialization. But it took uh, a rather unusual uh, accounting form uh, that one might not have predicted, and that is the form of a case study approach. Uh, those of you familiar with this will know that these case studies were rather abbreviated case studies, uh, four-page documents, uh, quite structured in form, and this was a kind of emergent form of accounting uh, that organisations sort of made up with the help of uh, HEFKE as a regulatory body over the last two years. So um, it's, it's the case study approach is very much a, a kind of invented approach uh, to deal with this. So um, it, it's qualitative and narrational in form, uh, but very, very strong on having a, a determinate uh, evidence base. Um, and of course, uh, what's interesting about these case studies is that in December, or, or happening now, their quality is going to be translated into quantities. So they will be rated on a scale of one to four. Uh, and this, in principle, will give uh, an opportunity to, in aggregate, score universities in terms of their impact and indeed rank them. So uh, at the point of translating these qualitative uh, accounts of impact into um, quantities, uh, this is, of course, is a very important accounting transformation, uh, but is playing out. Uh, we don't yet know um, what's, uh, what's going to happen. So the REF 2014, the creation of these impact case studies, I see it as as not a kind of monolithic uh, control exercise, but highly experimental, very partial, not applying to all academics, uh, and a lot of making up the rules as, as we go along and creating um, the, the impact case study accounting form, which had lots of technical problems to do with the time window and boundary issues uh, and so forth. So far from straightforward. 
What I wanted to do was to look at this, uh, the creation of this impact case study process uh, across a number of academic institutions and across a number of fields. So I duly uh, introduced myself to um, uh, de relevant departments in a number of universities. And um, while well, I was rather surprised, they didn't want to talk about it. Uh, and there was a kind of new form of closure that has opened up around, uh, around this process. And I find myself scratching my head because I now find it easier to conduct research inside an investment bank in the City of London than I do in a UK university. And what has happened there? Well, I think, uh, I don't really know. It's become more proprietorial, more private, more concerned with competitive pressures, uh, perhaps less willing to, to open themselves up. And we have to remember that universities were the great objects of uh, organisation research over the last 30 years because they were so open. And I found myself in a, in a position of being closed out uh, by my own kind. Uh, and that may well re uh, relate to some of the pressures that Wendy is talking about, or it may just be personal, uh, and I have to live with that. So, impact must be auditable, and uh, what was kind of interesting to observe that uh, uh, colleagues, including myself, collected uh, a kind of particular form of evidence called solicited testimony, which is a kind of constructive evidence where you go out to people you think you might have had impact on and ask them whether you've had impact on them. And if, if they think they have, you get them to put it in an email, and this counts uh, as evidence. And so there's a sense in which, uh, at least in this exercise, not, not wholly, but uh, quite a bit of causality was uh, um, highly constructed uh, by interaction between uh, researchers and, as they're now called, impactees. So, and of course, ultimate outcomes, because real causality in the social sciences is so difficult to prove, ultimate outcomes are impossible to demonstrate. So there was this kind of resting place around something, a category called interim impact, where you may have shaped debates or shaped agendas and so forth. Uh, and indeed, um, you know, a, a lot of us uh, have had that kind of impact. But what was interesting is uh, the uh, academics engaged and being busy in searching for traces uh, of impact that they, they might build into impact case studies and being supported by press offices and an infrastructure which would help them to, to look for traces. So impact's not there yet, but I, I can assure you it's coming as a kind of norm for higher education uh, organisations. Uh, for the last ref for the London School of Economics, the norm was about one impact case studies for 10 members of staff. So nine out of 10 people in the, in the LSC had... It just didn't touch them at all. The impact agenda had no influence on them at all. But interestingly, the REF put a very high economic value, perhaps too high, as one official of Hefke confessed to me, on these case studies. So they're worth £120,000 per annum for a four-star case study. See, I'm talking in a financialized way already. I, you know, I'm... Living proof of Wendy's thesis. So, um, 
Uh, but what is really interesting is the creation of, of a kind of uh, apparatus which is being built. So, so although the kind of uh, the intrusion of the impact agenda into the everyday academic life is not yet visible, um, it's, it's coming your way because uh, the very interesting sort of infrastructure investments uh, being created. So um, new experts, they're kind of higher education impact experts, I'm sure in the pages of the THES uh, who are here today, there will be adverts for impact offices and, and all these kinds of things very shortly. Press offices have been revamped, but interestingly, investments in, in large data. And I think this impact agenda and the kind of rise of technology, which, which Wendy didn't mention in her talk, but I think is a very important part of um, financialization. The rise of, uh, of, of technology and the ability to process huge amounts of data which can uh, assist in tracking all sorts of dimensions of performance and then re-aggregating them and ranking them and, and so on. That ju just that sort of information technology dimension uh, is very important. So impact and impact case studies and impact accounting sits at the centre of stuff that's been around quite a long time. There's been a lot of talk about engagement and the public mission of universities and knowledge exchange. That's been around a long time. But I, I think the impact agenda is going to have a kind of uh, very significant influence on the framing of, of these other activities. So what are the implications for higher education, just to bring it to, to a close? Um, there's no doubt in my mind, although I can't demonstrate it today, that today that impact is a kind of growing world-level policy value, and uh, and universities are a kind of case study of this this wider movement. Uh, although, I mean, I have quite a significant um, sort of uh, contact with corporates, uh, uh, private sector organisations, and they hardly ever talk about impact. Uh, it's not part of their vocabulary. So this is something, um, you know, it's sort of hyper-financialization that has been uh, imported into, into our world. Um, and I think it's fair to say that under conditions of, of austerity, there are kind of increased pressures to demonstrate the use of funds, and the impact agenda is part of that. But I think the... Um, the, instrument, the specific instrumentalization of the impact agenda uh, is, going, is kind of empirically, um, empirically important. And I think that the creation of this impact apparatus will be consequential for research uh, practices in, um, in a number of significant ways, which I will uh, suggest. But the... To talk kind of organisation theory for a second, the, the coupling of the impact agenda to academic life in general is still is is uh, still quite loose, uh, but changing over time. Uh, and in my own mind, I think the impact case study as a form of accounting is unlikely to be stable over time, because the current debate. Uh, is about citation metrics and the use of greater quantitative analysis in assessing academic performance uh, and academic impact. So it's going to be interesting to see how um, a hybrid form of impact accounting may accommodate a mix of metrics and the case study approach um, 
where we've been. And, and in retrospect, in, in five years' time, we may look back nostalgically on the good old case study approach to uh, impact, because <laughs> we may be in a very, very uh, different um, time. And one of the disadvantages of the impact case studies is they produce what policymakers don't like, and that is complexity. Uh, and even though they've been whittled down into a four-page form, nevertheless, I think someone at some stage uh, in a Treasury Department in this country is going to say, isn't this all a bit complex? Can't we do something more simple? Uh, and of course, therein lies the history of, of accounting systems. Um, <clears throat> And I think there's also a desire for aggregation and comparison, uh, which the impact case studies don't readily feed. So I'd see them as a, a kind of interim, um, uh, interim system of accounting, uh, which from an accounting academic's point of view makes them incredibly interesting, um, but the, un the future is rather uncertain. And my final slide, well, is uh, um, what are the other implications for higher education? Uh, Organizations are going to spend, um, higher education organizations are going to spend a lot of time trying to find impactees. Uh, so there's a new kind of um, uh, perhaps unexpected Foucauldian subjects uh, out there, <laughs> unwittingly being cultivated uh, as an Im impactee, being constructed and enrolled, uh, not for their own sake, but, but for the traces they can leave in this infrastructure that can then be reported. Um, it's both funny and true, uh, I would say. Uh, and of course, this is very, uh, a very costly uh, exercise. There's all the paradoxes of financialization that it actually, uh, actually costs much, much more than the old model uh, because it invests so much more in having to monitor itself and, and create reports. So I'm sort of, my talk is largely speculative based on um, what is a kind of single participant observation type study because, uh, as I said, I was closed out of doing something more systematic. Um, so I think the kind of reactivity, uh, uh, um, to quote a phrase, around the impact case study process is still very much in its infancy. Uh, but of course, any of you who've applied for grants uh, recently will realize that um, uh, having some kind of paragraph about uh, the likely impacts of your research uh, is very much um, a, a requirement or a hurdle that one, uh, uh, one needs to cross. So um, in that sense, uh, impact is here, uh, albeit as a fuzzy kind of object, and is definitely playing um, a, a role in the discourse. Um, one of the kind of really interesting things that I, I have witnessed is that uh, impact is required as a, a sort of an outcome, uh, but is rapidly becoming a target. So much so that uh, I've just in, uh, sort of finished a, a research study uh, and, um, you know, Perhaps I'm really stupid, but we've ended up having the impact really before the research uh, has happened. <laughs> so what's happened is the causality is becoming reversed as the impact norm becomes embedded. So uh, in the last ref, essentially what people did was looked back at research they'd done for scholarly purposes and tried to figure out whether it had any impact. So the causality was quite clear. There's research in the past 
and uh, did it have any effect on the way Treasury officials think about taxation or anything like that. But now that timescale is becoming very compressed with the impact agenda, you have to think about impact first as you're doing the research. So I think the, the kind of diffusion model is quite different. Have the impact, do some research, have a little bit more impact, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. So I think all that intensifies uh, the accounting uh, um, instrument. And finally, the, um, the, the impactful academic uh, is a kind of new subject uh, under construction. Uh, it hasn't yet crept into performance appraisal uh, systems, uh, at least in, in the LSE, but it's just round the corner uh, from being one of those things that we're going to add to research, teaching and citizenship, and it's coming, impact. So uh, it's, it, once it begins to become generalised as part of a performance assessment, then that will have very big, uh, big um, effects. So um, the impactful academic is going to be a new subject. And um, I think just to conclude, uh, in a way, um, academics in public institutions, which is really what this discussion uh, is about, the role of the public university, in a way, there's a long history of engagement uh, and reaching out. This, the LSE has a very, has a very proud tradition uh, of doing that, uh, of uh, engaging with the media, in, in social studies, uh, and so on. And that's true for many other institutions. So um, that work has always gone on. Um, but it's the accounting for it. It's the creation of the visibility uh, it's the reductive uh, accounting instruments for it, which is not neutral. And the one thing that we know in the accounting department of the LSE is accounting is not a neutral representation of an activity. Once you start accounting for something and requiring people to account for impact, it changes the thing itself. And so the nature of the public engagement is being in, in, will be in subtle ways and not so subtle ways changed as a result of this uh, accounting agenda. Uh, and uh, I think I'll leave it there. So I wonder if we could ask the speakers to come and join us on the podium now. And we have about 15 minutes for questions. Um, thank you so much, all of you, for excellent uh, very different, but I think getting a, a very different necessary aspect about the next few days. So, would anyone like to ask the first question? We have some roving mics here, and we'll probably have to use them. Any questions? John. Yes, I'm generally very sympathetic indeed to the argument about financialization in relation to the university. But in the context of public universities and uh, private charitable form uh, universities, financialization can only be partially an aspect of some of the functions of the university. Otherwise, what is happening is a process of a 
counting devices and proxy mechanisms. So one of the things I think that is interesting about the analogy, you know, there is a lot to fight for consequently because there's a core of academic activity, a core of academic research, which is not subject to financialization and for which it is difficult uh, for the university to financialize, in which case it might just simply get rid of it. That, that's correct. But I think the point that we need to emphasize in a, a, a setting where there's a lot of academics, if we're uh, going to be the person in front of the tanks, we have to recognize that the tanks are driven by managers inside the university, and it's on Senate lawn that we have to confront those tanks. So one of the problems is that the performance uh, related pay, performativity within the university, and primarily affecting professors uh, in Britain who are, are all if in effect on uh, performance related pay. It's the uh, academic professors' concern with privilege and pay which is preventing them from stepping in front of the, uh, of the tanks. So I think we need to be clear about who should be in front of the tanks, and it's not casual staff in the university, it's sort of tenured professorial staff, and they have something to lose, but they should be willing to lose it in the context of the bigger values that uh, risk being lost. Can I just say something very briefly? Sure. Um, so, so just to be really clear, I, by, by financialization, I'm actually talking about a whole order of value I, and, not, and not simply marketization and what can literally be financialized. Um, and in that regard, I think it's, uh, my argument at least is that that is something that has transformed public and private uh, universities alike and um, has transformed the working conditions and the governance uh, affecting both what you described as um, those established, privileged faculty um, as, as well as everyone else. So I actually am suggesting they have nothing to lose. They've already lost it. They've lost their governance power. They've lost their capacity to shape and organize and craft their classroom, their teaching, their curriculum, their graduate programs, and their research in a way that is not subject to rankings, ratings, metrics, and so forth that have to do with who will invest and, 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 and investor calculations. And I'm suggesting that um, exactly what you're saying, that that is exactly who should be standing in front of the tanks because they have already lost. They have lost that these, you know, Senates and, and, and uh, shared governance operations are shells at this point and that they should be standing exactly where you're su suggesting they should stand because there is no feature of the university that is uh, free from a financialized culture of governance, which means management by the markets, which doesn't always literally mean where the money is, but it does mean uh, a management according to speculative value. So I completely agree with you about who ought to be standing there, um, but I just want to suggest that it's not so much that we should give up our privilege and go stand in front of the tanks, but that um, the, the, the sandbar is eroding around us and that it's only by your image of the, of the ostrich with the head in its sand 
with that sand rapidly disappearing, uh, that one could imagine that there is still a, a privileged rank of faculty who are untouched by financialization. Let's be a bit careful about the tanks metaphor. Uh, people in this room still have a pretty good life uh, relative to people who actually stand in front of real tanks. That was the point I was making about, you know, because it is correct that professors have seen their salaries go up, their time in front of classrooms, uh, classes go down and a certain kind of autonomy over research if they accept the co-production of their research with uh, academic research managers. The academic research managers are themselves professors operating in that system. So, you know, uh, so in, in the image of Sam saying, well, actually, it is the professoriate who needs to defend the intrinsic values of the university exactly exactly so I actually don't have a disagreement with Mike either I mean we obviously have a, trem a phenomenally good life but the fantasy that we still are in charge of research and teaching and and govern the values of the university is pure fantasy and if we care about those values if we care about the quality of research and teaching beyond our own indulgence of our own lives um, if we care about that in any way that's what I'm suggesting is already lost and that's why I'm suggesting we belong on those front lines rather than in silly senate meetings where we're tinkering with um, metrics okay so I'm just going to take another question in a minute. Can I just ask you, everyone, to wait for the microphone to reach you before you pose your question, because otherwise we won't pick it up on the recording, and we, we, we would like to capture the questions. So can I have um, other hands? This, this person here, just behind you, Jacob. Yeah. And if you could just le give your name before you pose your question as well. Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm Claire Moon from um, Sociology Department at the LSE. Um, and the temptation to rename this um, conference is far too great. And especially after listening to the first panel, I want to rename it Governing Academic Death. Um, I'm sure the people have thought of that already, but um, I just wanted to get that in there. Um, but on a more serious note... Um, I was interested in Gominda Bambra's um, presentation and your um, description of these stages of academic awareness. And I slightly want to recast them as stages of academic denial. Um, and I'm wondering, I'm just raising this um, speculatively, really, whether um, in some ways it might be related to um, the culture of critique, which I think in the last um, decades has resisted articulating explicitly the emancipatory um, nature of um, its interventions. So I think that academic denial um, might um, be connected to um, some of the dominant intellectual trends um, within the academy. This is something I just want to raise um, really for discussion. Thank you. Okay, we'll take a couple of questions then. Thank you, Claire. Um, any, any other hands up? Yourself? Yeah. Um, actually. Okay. Uh, does this work? Um, I'd like to add something to the discussion, which is 
probably as important as the uh, impact agenda and the uh, assessment of teaching and the uh, fees and everything, uh, academic publishing. Perhaps this is going to be discussed later today and tomorrow, I don't know. But uh, uh, the uh, financialization of academic publishing and the journals that are changing in shape in the last few years is also immensely important. And something interesting that I've observed uh, what's going on in mathematics is that uh, a large mathematic community has protested against the changes in publishing by um, setting up something called the archive, which is an online system for sharing, um, for free sh and um, free access sharing of published materials. And this is something that we don't still have in the social sciences and humanities. Uh, and I think this would be a very important thing to discuss. Perhaps this would be a, an important way to resist the financialization by allowing wider public uh, access to publications through a, somehow in a free and open access way. We, we will definitely be discussing that actually in the next session okay, uh, after thanks. lunch. So great. Um, maybe one more question. It's Chris, is it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Chris Newfield from UC Santa Barbara. This is a question for Michael Power about the impact agenda. Uh, I mean, I, th I think something that people are frustrated by with academics is that we tend to nibble around the edges of problems instead of just saying, no, this won't work. And what, what I see in the impact agenda, as you just described it, uh, is that it's going in the wrong direction away from engagement. And there are a couple of terrains where we could see this wrong direction are to explain. One is um, that the sort of the discipline of learning and what learning is as opposed to just teaching uh, is showing how deeply it's based on relationships. And you can see the older form of engagement as relationship-based, establishing connections among academics and communities that are more meaningful in the long run than a transactional impact. And the second area is in technology transfer. This sounds like it's modeled on that, uh, or learning transfer, I guess you would call it here, in which um, there's a large literature showing that it denatures basic research to always be trying to push it towards you know, a, a pre-commercial transaction that can be monetized and then you know, pushed into a commercialization process down the road. So it sounds as though the impact agenda is trying to rewire all academic activity, learning, research, around essentially two failed models. And I'm just wondering if accounting could make a stronger statement about any of those things. As a discipline, not blaming you. Uh, thank you. Um, no, it's a, it's a good set of reflections. I mean, I think... Um, I mean, one point relevant to your, your comment is that uh, different disciplines and maybe different disciplines in different places think about the impact agenda in quite different ways, all the way from rejection to uh, enthusiastic embracing. Uh, so I think the impact agenda has, has shown up the fragmentation uh, or the very sort of uh, heterogeneity of orientations to the outside, if you like, uh, of, of academic disciplines uh, and the multiplicity of that. So there's, there's definitely not a one-size-fits-all technology transfer type model there, but it's been embraced in, in, in very different ways. Um, uh, you're right about it. It's sort of antithetical to a relationship-based um, uh, 
kind of view of, of engagement and transfer and learning and, and things like that. Although paradoxically, um, building relationships with impactees is probably a, a good idea in this, in this new world as well. So, but the, these are kind of not relationships, I think, in the way that you're describing relationships. Would anyone like to take on Claire's question? Maybe well, I mean, the three ostriches, the pictures of the three ostriches and, and so on, it, it was used in an article that we published on the campaign for the public university website. And in a way, it was an attempt to make sense of the ways in which academics have responded to the campaigning that we've been doing over the last four years. And there was the sense that when four years ago we began to analyze the situation and think about the situation and discuss the changes that were happening, every single time we put forward an account of what it was that we thought was happening, the response by many academics was, oh, it won't be so bad. You're just really pessimistic. This isn't going to happen. And, you know, let's just carry on with doing what we're doing. When it came to pass that every single thing that we have argued for has happened, and it hasn't just happened, it's happened worse than we even predicted that it might happen, the response then was, the head's in the sand, well, we're doing our research, it's now too bad, we can't do anything about it. And when it's now coming to have an impact upon the lives of academics in a direct way such that we can't ignore some of this stuff, then it's like, why didn't anybody do anything about this? And it's like, well, in a way, what can we as academics do? We try to make sense of the situation. We try to disseminate this. There was some concerted effort at the very beginning in 2010, 2011, and then it just disappeared. We came to some sort of accommodation with the system. And I think that one of the things that's incredibly striking is that where the activity has come and where the... The, the sort of defense of the public values of higher education have come from. They've come from students. They've come from casualized staff. They've come from people who are on zero-hour contracts in the most precarious of positions. So in a way, the people with the most to lose have been the most committed to taking action in relation to this. The professoriate have been notoriously silent on these issues. And it is because of the privileged position that the professoriate occupies. And in a sense, the argument I would wish to make is why is it that we can't use that privilege to try and defend something that we say that we're committed to, particularly those of us who otherwise profess leftist leanings? Well, it's 33 minutes past 12, and that might actually be a rousing note on which to go to lunch. This is far from over, this set of discussions. So thank you very much to our speakers. For a wonderful